Thanks for checking out this weekly Sunday message from Carrollton UMC. We pray that God will use this to speak to you and help you grow in faith. We invite you to join us this Sunday at our 10.30 a.m. one-hour service in person at our location in Uptown New Orleans or live online on our YouTube channel or Facebook page. To learn more about Carrollton, please visit carrolltonumc.com. We hope you enjoy this message. We've now reached the point where we are going to have our liturgists come up and read the Holy Scripture for us for today's lessons. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am God, oh no, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I can come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I shall go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that you, that is, no, that it is, I who have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I, shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are all to say to the Israelites. Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. 
Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word read in this sanctuary. We open our minds and our hearts and our eyes to see, hear, and take in your holy word, its meaning, and its direction. We pray that you will help us follow, Heavenly Father, in the ways that you would have us go. Amen. <clears throat> that story is one of the best known, one of the most popular ones. I laugh every time I hear that read. My late mother was given a set of VHS tapes of Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. She wore two sets out. So we finally had to buy a DVD set. If you'll talk with any students that I have taught in the seminary or in the university, they will tell you that man must know every line and every scene because he beats us over the head with that movie nonstop. It's very important. Beautiful job. Some flaws, but it's worth seeing. The story, as it appears, is a story written by the Eloist. It's the Northern Kingdom of Israel author. And one of the fascinating things about the story, before you even get into it, is that a fellow whose name was Sargon the Great who ruled in ancient Mesopotamia was dead in his grave for over a thousand years before the birth of Moses. Yet their stories track almost precisely up to the point where they are in service to the monarch. When that was first discovered by the cuneiform specialists, it caused quite a sensation and a surge in biblical studies all around the world. <clears throat> a lot of efforts have been made, especially by the great E.A. Spicer, to make some sense out of that tax. It has some interesting problematic pieces to it. Among those <clears throat> is this business of commission. Moses is getting the greatest commission that any human being has ever received. But then Moses asked God for his name. And a more precise translation is I will be what I will be. God doesn't trust Moses. With good reason. It's not about to give Moses his name. If you know the name of a person or a place or a thing, it gives you power over it. You 
can say the full proper name of a person, place, or thing and say something powerfully good and just by saying a divine name, trigger it, and it will happen. That is a blessing. But woe if you say the full proper name of a person, place, or thing and something negative, that's a curse. And if you tap again into the power of a divine name, that will happen. You see all these people talking about, don't be using the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They don't even know what they're saying. You are prohibited from weaving God's name into curses and blessing formulas. You are supposed to ask God to utilize his power to change the fate of people for the better. You may ask him to punish those who are perpetuating evil in the society, but you are not to use God's name, turning him into a tool for you to benefit those who you hold in esteem and to lay low those you find objectionable. That story has an interesting turn in chapter 4. <laughs> Moses is on his way. He camps. And all of a sudden, God starts to suffocate him to death. And his wife, Zephora, you know, Birdie, she knows exactly why God is killing him. He just sent him on the great mission. He's lived with the priest of Midian long enough to get married, to have a child, have it start to grow. And he's inside of the priest of Midian's household. The only three things you're supposed to do, only worship that God, sacrifice your first fruits, and circumcise your sons. But see, Birdie didn't want him to do that to her baby. And so good old Moses said, well, okay, if that's what you say. And God is saying, so let me get this straight now. <clears throat> if I tell you to do something, and Birdie tells you to do something else, you're going to listen to Birdie. So how about this? Suffocate you to death right here, and I'll start over again. She knows exactly what's happening. Sacrificial knives are stone blades. She looks around. She sees a piece of flint on the ground. She pops it on a rock and gets a microlit. These little razor-sharp slivers of stone. And she grabs her child's foreskin, and she cuts it off, and she tosses it on Moses in contempt. And immediately, God stops killing him. But what she has unwittingly done is not simply comply with God's direction in the covenant. Where does the blood of the sacrifice go? It goes on the horns of the altar and it goes smeared on the side of the altar. What she unwittingly did was transfer a power into him. She created in him the living altar of Yahweh. And that is a life-changing experience for not only him, but for all of the people who will follow. You see, sometimes we unwittingly do things that have far greater ramifications than we could ever imagine. 
answering the call. In the Christian religion, from the earliest days, there has been a recognition that there are two dimensions at a minimum wherein we are called. One is doing the work that God has equipped us to do to keep the world functioning in harmony as was the design at the creation. God tells the first man that he is the person who will take care of the great garden in Eden. So you come here with work to do. God has equipped you to do certain kinds of work. All the way down to guys like Cotton Mather are telling you, recognize that God has you in the community to work for the greater material good, but that is supposed to be a way in which you amplify the grace of God at work in the community. I've taken the liberty too many times with people like Patan, my good friend here, using people in the congregation for examples. I'm stay away from that today because uh, this is a delicate one. Talk about myself. Ninth grade. Arthur drops me off at a new school. I sit in the cafeteria for five days waiting for a schedule. Lady say, son, come over here. I'm going to put you in the classes, and I'll put you in my homeroom. Eat your lunch and go over here. So I walk in there, it's science class, my first class in junior high. And I hand the lady the card, and I sit down. And she gets up, and she walks over to the demo desk, and she takes a big beaker of water, and she pours a bottle of ink in there, and she takes a bottle of iodine, she puts in some dirt, and she stirs it up and says, somebody tell me how to make this into drinkable water. She leans up and says, the new boy, how can you do it? I said, well, you've got a ring stand, ring stand ring, Bunsen burner, a piece of apparatus called a distillation tube, some rubber tubing, yeah, I can do it, but if you don't have that equipment, I can do it with an Erlenmeyer flask or a Florence flask and a couple of little pieces of hose and the bursting burner. Now, I'm in a class with some thugs. They turned around and looked at me and said, The professor! Name stuck with me ever since. Sometimes... The call comes in a peculiar way. My dad happened to see that guy walking down the street. Hey, professor. My dad turns and looked at me and said, they call you that? I said, yes, sir. He said, man, everybody in the neighborhood is scared of that guy. That's a lot of respect that guy is showing you. Don't you let that slip past you. 
You see, God, even at that early stage, was making a call on my life. And even though I embraced it, I didn't understand the dimensions of it. As recently as this past week, for maybe the dozenth time, I got a communication from someone who said, you just simply felt like you were giving me a little comfort, a little sagely advice. But you see, I was starting to wonder if I belong alive, whether I should stay on the earth. And your conversations made me realize exiting by suicide wasn't the thing to do. It's happened time and again. You answer the call without really understanding the dimensions of it. You're doing work that's not simply performing a professional service for a wage. You're touching people's lives, all of you, every day, and you don't even realize the power in those little tiny acts of kindness, those little acts of concern. You're an instrument in the hand of God. And though you are exercising what you consider to be just simply decency, compassion, love, you are doing a powerful thing because you are answering the call of God on your life to do something more than stack stuff. So even when you're not aware of it, when you do your work, and you do your work well, the things that come out of that go beyond making stuff and stacking dollars. It's powerful, they so. You see, Moses and Sargon were little kids inside of the palace complex learning how to be administrators, learning how to organize people, learning how to make crisis-level decisions, figuring out how to cope with danger. Neither one of them realized they were being groomed to be a powerful leader who would affect tens of thousands of people, many of whom which they would never see or hear of. That's the same thing for you. Whether you want to accept it or not, you do more good in the course of a single day by being true to what God has given you the special gifts and talents to do. Okay, that's one side of the thing. But then there is the other side. There is a spiritual calling on your life. You see, Sargon and Moses were saying to everybody, 
I'm taking my direction from a divine source. And I trust it. And I obey it without questioning. That's a lot to step out on, you know. How do you think Matthew felt? You don't know this doggone guy. The guy looks at him and says, put down what you're doing and follow me. The man is working for the government. He's collecting taxes. And he gets up and he follows him. He just walks away from it. Or did he? He goes to that guy's house, and he's sitting down eating. They're socializing. They're chilling out. But you see, other people who everybody looked down on and despised are the tax collectors, are the pagans, are the lowlifes, are the despised, were his friends. And they came in. And suddenly, because one guy listened and obeyed without question, suddenly had a ripple effect that sent the gospel testimony through a set of people who the word might never have reached otherwise. And now they're telling the story about this person. That little comment you made, that was really rough, but God saw me through trust God and it worked out for me. It's hard. It took a little while. But the Lord is good. God is good all the time. You just preached a sermon. You just did something by your living testimony that makes people know you answered the call, and it had a good outcome. You see, everything isn't pulpit ministry. Everything isn't the musical ministry. Everything doesn't put you in the limelight, but you're the focus. But you're the focus of God. God's looking at what you're doing. God is listening to what you're saying. God seeing if you're doing the work that was put there where you have the unique talents to put your hand to the plow. But he's also watching what you're doing that goes beyond that on a higher level. You're called. You're capable. Never, ever downplay the power of God that can work through you. You are special. If you say, here I am, Lord, God can do magnificent things with you. So don't doubt it. Sit down and meditate. Pray about it. Open yourself up to the possibilities. Think about those things that you like to do and you do so well 
that people take notice and they compliment you on it and take those opportunities to say, by the grace of God, testify, answer the call. Amen.